0: So, things have been a little bit different with the Intuitive Co for the last two weeks, and that is because I've been working on a theatre project that's um, had some really demanding hours, and so I just haven't had as much time to commit to the Intuitive Co as I usually would. With that in mind, I thought I would share something with you all that I wrote for um, my studies last semester, To just tell you a bit about what theatre means to me in terms of what I think theatre should do and how I think it should be made. So, enjoy. The Thriving Artist's Manifesto. This manifesto outlines a number of mindsets I have found vital to ensure my work and I can thrive, as well as what I have observed in others and their success. Here, I will restate each tenant of the manifesto and elaborate on it using my own experience and the ideas of artists with similar mindsets. For the writer to thrive, they must also read. This is also true of the dramaturg, the director, and the actor. The more content one ingests, the more they can regurgitate. Obviously, plagiarism is not the objective, but the more one reads, the more they can bring to their art. It shows them more of what's possible. Reading of course is not limited to the page. Text is found everywhere. The page, the stage, the screen, in song and in life. All of this is fodder for the artist's metaphorical compost pile, which, with luck and with skill, will ferment into something beautiful. Of course, simply reading something does not immediately improve one's skill. American writer John McNally writes that one needs to read hundreds or thousands of novels and to read them as a writer. In this instance, novel is interchangeable with any text or lived experience. You must interrogate what you read and experience in order to discern what makes it work, what makes it beautiful. What we read greatly influences our view of people and the world, especially in childhood. Writers in particular are often noted to be quite open about how irrevocably the books they read as children have influenced both their writing and their lives. I find this extends beyond childhood. If I was not a person living a life, I would have nothing to write about. If I was not a person who read, I would not know how to write about this life. McNally echoes my sentiments once more when he says, a three-year-old cannot be a virtuosic novelist in the same way they can be a piano or chess-playing prodigy. It isn't possible, because writing takes living. It takes life experience that a three-year-old, no matter how brilliant, doesn't have. You must read, and you must live. For a creative to thrive, they must be willing to venture into unseen places. They must understand, though the ideas of others may have been proven useful and effective, these are not the only ways of doing things. Hegemony is the death of creativity, and this applies both to process and to product. In the modern market, it is all too easy to fall into regular patterns of art making. The public comes to expect something of an artist once they become successful, and the artist feels a pressure to maintain their success. Performance artist Marina Abramovich's approach to this dilemma is one I employ and concur with. She emphasizes the need for artists to do what frightens them, what makes them uncomfortable, what they have never done before. Without experimentation, there cannot be failure, and without failure, there cannot be growth. This is true of both solo and group endeavors. Collaboration, devising, creative development. These are all processes reliant on collective discovery. Without group experimentation and epiphanies, which often yield unexpected results, there can be no work. Devising, in my opinion, is done best when beginning from a state of play. Play is a state in which meaning is in flux, in which possibility thrives, in which versions multiply, in which the confines of what is real are blurred, buckled, and broken. Though it is important once those boundaries are dissolved, the artists re-solidify them in a mould of their choosing. Breaking rules and subverting convention are valid goals in art making, but as Lehman warns, Provocation alone does not produce great art. There must be a purpose. There must be a logic of some sort, even if that logic is hidden from the audience. The artist or artists must know why their art is the way it is. For an artist to thrive, they must understand that they are enough. All the necessary creative power and knowledge to generate phenomenal art lies within the artist. Stanislavski's concept of the emotional reservoir does not apply only to the actor. All creatives must draw from their own experiences and imbue their work with life and energy. The writer's job is to make the director's job easier, which is to make the actor's job easier. The actor's job is to serve their character and the text at large. This creative Oberos can only sustain itself if all involved in a project give themselves to it fully and with the belief they are knowledgeable and skilled enough to make the work great. Psychological research tells us a strong and coherent identity is its own creative achievement. It is of key importance to the realization of creative potential, to translating it into achievement. It helps one focus on goals and persevere despite failure, thus increasing the odds of success. As I stated earlier, an artist must live, but living must not be restricted by any sense of lack or inadequacy. Such feelings are too dense and all too easily disrupt creative flow, whether that be in a group or solo context. Csikszentmihalyi tells us flow is a subjective state that people report when they are completely involved in something to the point of forgetting time, fatigue, and everything else but the activity itself. The defining feature of flow is intense experiential involvement in moment-to-moment activity. I would say it is more than fair to assert that flow is impossible if insecurity and doubt cloud the mind of an artist. You cannot focus on a task with your entire being if you are concerned about whether or not you can complete it to someone else's standard. You must satisfy yourself first. The public and the market are secondary. For a creative process to thrive, there must be trust amongst collaborators. Hostility and disrespect, whether conscious or not, are the easiest ways to bring collaboration to a grinding halt. The railroading and provocation of fellow creatives for the sake of getting your own way or some other twisted form of manipulation or psychological experiment is abusive. Disrespect invites distrust, and distrust is the easiest way to block group flow. Trust is important in group context as it is associated with an atmosphere of safety, one in which it is allowable or even encouraged to admit you do not know something and where joint problem solving is a well-practiced well behavior. The ability to trust your peers and vice versa is imperative to you being able to work with them efficiently. Issues arise when in low trust environments. When disrespect is present in a group context, it poisons the root of the work being done, selling it for those involved. Furthermore, being in a low-trust environment, one may suffer harm to their self-image. This tenant goes hand-in-hand with the previous one. Being in high-trust environments when collaborating is conducive to high self-esteem. A strong and coherent sense of self is vital to the flow of individual creativity. Flow is only possible when you are fully invested in the task at hand, and a low-trust environment will only distract from the task. Distraction due to resentment or insecurity will only impede the creative outcomes of the group. If one wishes to create a high trust environment, I would recommend introducing a code of conduct to your collective or devising one with them. It keeps everyone accountable, including yourself, preventing any behavior that may cause distress or distrust. For a work to thrive, textual specificity must be of paramount importance. Whether the text is written or physical is irrelevant. No detail, if it be useful, is too small, and it must be useful. The inclusion of anything unnecessary to the development of a work's plot, characters, or dramaturgy serves only to muddy the work. It serves only to confuse audience's view of what is going on and what it means. Even when confusion and ambiguity are desired outcomes, you must be specific about what is confusing and ambiguous. In terms of the written text, precision has been a priority since the primacy of Greek tragedy. Aristotle privileges the unities of action, place, and time as being the only foundation on which good stories are built. He discerns a play must follow one conflict to its resolution for one day in one place. Chekhov is also renowned for the exactitude of his work. He tells writers if you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter it must absolutely go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. These guidelines refer to a specificity of structure and content, respectively. The time spent on things irrelevant to the central arc of a work is wasted time. Physical meticulousness is required when performing, especially in non-verbal works. Stanislavski tells us character is action. The things a character does, as well as how and why they do them, tells us more about a character than anything they say. When performing in a non-verbal context, physicality tells us everything. It gives us insight into status, emotion, relationship, circumstance, all the things we usually rely on text for. The body must become the text, and it must be just as specific as the writer who mentions a a gun in the first act. For a work to thrive, emotional weight must have a purpose and a payoff. This is true of both the cast and the audience. Emotional violence for the sake of emotional violence does nothing but trigger audiences and casts alike. It leaves them to tie up the loose ends of their own frayed nerves in solitude, which is highly unsafe. I find Lehman's warning about being provocative with form without purpose is also relevant to content. To show something disturbing to an audience simply to do so is one, irresponsible, and two, not conducive to poignant art. I also find Chekhov's gun is an important concept to reiterate here. If something is not necessary to the progression of a work's narrative or the bolstering of its dramaturgy, then it should not be included." This is not to say stories must be tied up neatly and difficult emotional content cannot be explored by artists. However, frameworks must be put in place to ensure the emotional safety of audiences and creative teams alike. Actors must be directed in a way that makes them feel safe. The audiences must be given some sense of closure or satisfaction. This is a pivotal element of the Greek tragedies. Catharsis, the arousal and purging of negative emotions, is said to be vital to the audience's experience of a work. Medea kills her sons, Antigone ends her own life, and Oedipus blinds himself, but it is all done in a way that 1. suits the dramaturgy of the work in question, and 2. leaves audiences satisfied for the aftermath of such events. If, of course, you find yourself in an instance where catharsis is not cohesive with the dramaturgy of a piece, frameworks must be put in place to consolidate for this. Clear trigger warnings, which have become vital in recent years, and chill-out spaces for audiences to decompress after performances are two such frameworks I would recommend. As an artist, I will create work that shows audiences not only who I am, but who they are. I will absorb the work of others and use it in combination with my lived experience to create provocative, precise, and purposeful art. I will create collaborative environments based on respect and trust. I will do what frightens me, what I have not done before, and allow projects to lead me where they will. And most importantly, I will thrive.